<laughs> it's not <laughs> cheddar. It would have been provolone uh, if it was Rudy, you know, because <laughs> that's the Italian thing. Mm. Well done, as always, my friend. And you can have whatever protein shake you want. <laughs> I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. Republican sabotage is afoot in the House, says Speaker Pelosi. We have a member of Congress who's holding up the disaster bill. He wants to tell us why he is doing the right thing in his opinion, and we will test the case. On the Democratic side, what's the bigger risk to Joe Biden? The president's tweets or his position on the 94 crime bill? Congressional vet majority whip Jim Clyburn has a stern message for presidential contenders on this issue, and you need to hear it. And how many are going to die this year trying to climb Everest? We have new information tonight on the state of the fatal log jam. What do you say? Let's get after it. All right, so here's the latest. Congressman Tom Massey from Kentucky has become the second Republican in a week to hold up $19 billion in disaster relief monies. His fellow Republican, Chip Roy, led the way on Friday. Now, Roy says he has good reason to stop the bill, even if it delays needed funding to people in his home state of Texas. Congressman Roy, welcome back to primetime. Good to have you here to make the case. Let me ask you, over the Memorial Day weekend, what did you tell your constituents who need this money? Well, Chris, thanks for uh, having me on and thanks for focusing on this important issue. And let me tell you what happened. Last Thursday, Speaker Pelosi adjourned the House representatives for the Memorial Day recess mm-hmm. for 10 days and everybody was out of town. And I'm heading to the airport to come home to Texas. And uh, what I hear is that the speaker was inclined to bring forward a bill that would spend $19 billion unpaid for without any head nod towards the disaster we've got going on at our southern border and that she was going to do so by unanimous consent. Mm-hmm. And that means she wasn't going to have a vote. And I don't know about you, but the American people were working last Friday, but unfortunately the House of Representatives wasn't in Washington. She was gonna bring forward a bill and have it go by consent. Mm -hmm. And I just happen to be of the belief that if you're gonna spend $19 billion of taxpayer money, we should vote on it. The People's House have a responsibility to do our job and vote. I got you. So I left the airport, went back, stood there, and I had stood up and showed up on Friday, and I objected. Now look, I've got a lot of understanding of how much this means to people in Florida and Georgia and Puerto Rico, even in Texas, and how important it is. But you know what? The speaker has had five months to get this right. These are disasters that have been going on or that occurred 18 months ago, we should do our job in the House, vote on it, All right. and have an actual debate. The people are tired of business Here, as usual in Washington. Let's just go, you, you, you unpack three basic reasons of your resistance. Let's just go through them one by one. One, you said, sure. she's not letting a debate. She was doing this by unanimous consent. You know, uh, the nod there is that there isn't going to be consensus on this. Now, Jim Clyburn, right. and in looking at the legislative history here, This is not new, this bill. You guys agreed on a set of monies and a set of principles. It went over to the Senate. They supposedly were going to like it. The president didn't like the Puerto Rico money. Then there became more of a kerfluffle. But then the stuff that you did like, the president got past the Puerto Rico part. The Senate then sent it back to you. So in essence, Chip, this is what you guys already said yes to. Why say no now? Well, first of all, you'll know, and I think you, Chris, have looked at the record, 150-odd Republicans uh, voiced objection. It was a large number of Republicans that voiced objection to the first version of the bill. But the bill went to the Senate. It came back. None of us had seen it. We didn't know what was in it. We knew that it was had two or $3 billion more than the first version. And now we had to take a, 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 a accept what Speaker Pelosi was going to do, put it on the floor on a Friday after everybody went out of town, and pass it by consent. Mm-hmm. That's not what the American people want. They but want the White to House has already sent the way, the White House had already signed off. 
Sure, the, the, the White House's view was that they wanted to try to get the kind of uh, a relief that they want to get in place, which I totally appreciate in Florida and Georgia and Puerto Rico and other parts of the country. But our job in the House is to vote. You shouldn't pass legislation. You shouldn't pass a bill that's going to spend $19 billion without voting on it. There are many things that we wanted to have a discussion about and debate, including, by the way, the fact that we've got a border supplemental that's been being ignored by the speaker. All right, so that's and we point didn't have two. the ability that's, to even that, talk about that in that's, the process. That's point two. Now, I had had Dick Durbin on here. Obviously, we all know who he is. He's counting the votes for the Democrats in sure. the Senate. He had said, look, I like this uh, disaster bill for a number of reasons. One of them is I think this is how we're going to deal with the emergency on the border. Chip Roy and I have talked about this on this show before. It's a constant concern for us here on Cuomo Primetime and with good reason. Um, So then they took that away. They wanted a clean bill, Mm -hmm. as they call it. You stand up to that as a matter of principle. I'm good with that. Although, Chip, if you're going to make the stand... Why not create more energy around getting help? It's not that just the Democrats don't want to do it. Clyburn makes a good case. He says, you guys can't agree on anything. Compromise is seen as capitulation, like you're giving your head. You guys can't even agree on getting done what will help stop these kids from being held in places where they're going to be sick, held too long, maybe worse. Why not? Well, I think you should ask that question of my Democrat colleagues who refuse to even have a vote or debate it. What should have happened is Speaker Pelosi should have called us back in or not adjourned, by the way, gotten the bill over from the on the disaster supplemental on Thursday. We should have debated it Thursday night, debated Friday. She should have put forward. But that supplemental is filled with things that have nothing to do with the emergency. I'm not saying they're not worthy debates. I think it's all worthy. The asylum rules, reunification, all that stuff. Have the debate. But you guys can't handle it all at once. You can't even handle one part of it. You can't even get these kids well, that's four, out of look, harm's way. But, Chris, that four, that Chris $4.4 billion yeah. supplemental that director of, of OMB vote sent up as a letter request to the Hill. Yes. Let's have a debate on that. We didn't have a debate in the House on that. Let's debate it along with this disaster supplemental. Let's talk about the 100,000 people much time. not being apprehended. Let's talk Too about much the time. kids. Let's Too talk much about time. Deal with the kids right now, no. Chip. You know they're dying. Fine. Well, we can have that debate about the beds that are needed to house the kids. Let's have the debate about the beds that are needed to deal with families. Let's have the debate about the fentanyl that's coming across the border, the cartels that are it's have too operational much control time. of the border. There's an emergency. It's like there's a hurricane coming, and you want to have a debate about preparedness for the next storm season. we got to deal with the crisis what right I now. Do. Well, we, but the crisis right now, Chris, is the flow across the border. And if you don't stop the flow, then that crisis is going to continue. And you're the not going to have right beds, is the all flow the beds in the world to is not the border. Deal with the kids. Just, just, to, just to correct right, right. the context. In order to flow stop to that. the border. This in order isn't to about stop that. drug mules and, you know, gangbangers and MS-13. This is about kids and the people who are coming with them. That's the crisis they can't handle the flow of. Right. But why are the, ki- but why are the kids coming across? It's because the kids are being used by the cartels, often being the, recycled. Some. And they're being abused. Some. Because in the we're not do anything to stop the but flow. the numbers have that as nowhere near a significant percentage in terms of the number of legit economic and other different types of emergency desperation that's sending them to run. I don't think we have to make it sound like it's all bogus. It's real need that's there. There's some people who are abusing the system, as always. But I don't think you should write right. it off but- as that, Chip. But you know as well as I do that the cartels are going to make, well, the report came out a month ago saying the cartels are making $2 billion yes. moving people across they the border. They make a ton of money. Not even talking about the narcotics. And they're abusing our asylum laws to do it. And so we've got to actually address the issue at the border and not just have a Band-Aid put on it with beds at HHS to house the kids. We need those beds. Let me be honest. We need them. We need the beds. We need to deal with the families. But if you don't fix the asylum process, I know, but why if you don't can't deal you do with the, the beds officers, first, if you Chip? Don't, 
Do the, if, if these weren't well, their I, I would, kids, if these were our kids, and I'm obviously drawing a distinction as a point of emphasis, if these were kids from Texas, we would have gotten in the beds right away. We would have made sure they were safe right well, away look, and well cared for right away not, and then dealt with no, the rules. Hold on. But Chris, Chris, hold on a second. Yes, sir. We had an amendment on the floor two weeks ago or last week where we offered even just a $2.8 billion for those beds, and Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats voted it down. Like, there they was don't nothing care. else attached this is a political to the 2.8. My understanding they, was the 2.8 wasn't just beds, that it was other things that were the in there 2. also. 8, the $2.8 billion was the HHS number that was important for the beds for the kids, not the 4.4, which is actually, right, that's a different opinion, number. more important to stop the flow. Right. So, and that's and, what we need to do, stop the flow. One other thing, because now we're, we're getting into um, this policy season, which is a good thing. The sure. idea of, hey, this wasn't paid for, this bill. Amen to you on that. You guys should make sure everything you give is paid for. You did not do it with a tax bill, though. And do you regret that? That you put this tax, the president calls it rocket fuel. I think it's low octane at best if you're looking at the numbers that just came out of uh, the congressional report from a nonpartisan uh, point. You didn't pay for that one. So why was it okay to not pay there? But this 19 billion has to be paid for. Well, I believe that all of the spending measures that we put forward should be a part of the budget and have a process that's balanced. If you want to have a debate about how much income we should have, you know, we've got a strong amount of income coming in as a result of the strong economy. Now, you and I can agree or disagree on how much the tax cuts are causing economic growth. I think it's causing strong economic growth. I think the regulatory environment's creating strong economic growth. I think that's imperative. What happened right. in but the 1990s? But you know, the deficit is huge because the cuts budget? weren't paid for and they haven't offset. Right. This new report says well, that it's less than 5% of what was needed to offset the cost, the amount of growth that yeah, they but that's in. not. But see, but that misses what happened. Look, look what happened in the 80s and 90s, right? We had strong economic growth from lower taxes and lower regulations that led to uh, unprecedented economic growth. And then with a contract with America, Republicans came in and limited spending. And Bill Clinton, to his credit, went along with that with his era of big government mm-hmm. is over. And by 2000, we had a balanced budget. But today, we can't even get any of our Democrat colleagues to sit down at a table and have a conversation about spending restraint. We have a spending problem more than we have a revenue problem. Mm-hmm. Now, look, Chris, I'll be happy to sit at a table right. with any of my Democrat colleagues and have a conversation about what should be on the table. Well, but a lot of that spending came from growth. this president's last budget, too. I'm just saying, look, you're making the right point, Chip. You guys got to sit down. You have to figure things out, especially where those kids are involved. I just can't believe we're still watching and waiting and listening to the desperation from the men and women keeping but, us safe and trying to and the, protect But the these main kids. point here, and I appreciate, I appreciate you focusing on this. The main point is the speaker should have called us together and we should have debated it. Instead of having one-minute speeches about people winning track championships or whatever, we should be on the floor of the House debating the important issues, talking about these kids, talking about the cartels, talking about balancing the budget, having actual uh, pay-fors for this kind of spending, and right. talking about how to get a disaster look, through with a vote. I think you we should just do it. It'll be great. And then when it moves to the Senate, you'll have to take it up with your colleague, Mitch McConnell, because he won't put these things on the floor. But that's not your problem. Chip Roy, well, congressman from Texas. Republican, thanks, Chris. Thank you for making the case. You're always welcome on this show. Let's go back to the border. We, listen, unfortunately, we're going to have to and it's going to be soon. I'll give you a call when I'm on my way. Yeah. Take care, Congressman. All right. Joe Biden is hitting back at President Trump, who tried to weaponize Biden's support for the 94 crime bill. Has this president forgotten his ugly role in what led to that bill? Jim Clyburn was on Biden's side back then, Democrat from South Carolina, and he has a tough message for those attacking the bill now. We have that next. All right, we got another player in the mix for you tonight. 
Two big issues for the majority whip in the House, the holdup on disaster relief and what he sees as a way forward and the attacks on Biden about the 94 crime bill. Now, this president's criticism about the crime bill is easy to dismiss. After all, his ugly and false accusations against the Central Park Five, that group of black and Hispanic kids falsely accused of a rape in the late 80s, was part of what led to the calls for harsher punishment in that 94 crime bill. But what about the shade from other Democrats running for president. Democratic congressman from South Carolina and majority whip James Clyburn says he has a message for them. Mr. Majority Whip, thank you very much for joining us on primetime. Well, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with this controversy from the weekend. Uh, First, looking at it broad view. Uh, Do you believe that the president making the comments he made about the North Korean leader in relation to the former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, was it so beyond the pale, in your opinion? I think it was. Uh, One of the first things I learned in politics is how to respect uh, this country, its leadership, irrespective of what party you may be a member of, most especially when you're traveling on foreign soil. We have always learned not to criticize our president when he is on foreign soil. And certainly the president ought not be uh, tweeting insults uh, back to the United States while he is on foreign soil. The substance of the matter, uh, if that was what it was ever about, was the 94 crime bill and the idea that Joe Biden being for it is going to be an albatross. Now, 94 was a long time ago. There was a lot of different things going on. You wound up being in favor of this bill because of the sum of its parts. Joe Biden makes the same argument. Is it bad for him? Well, I don't think so. I think that we have to look even back beyond 1994. In 1986 and 88, we had some crime bills that were very punitive. One of them had a 100 to one, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. And in 1994, what we were trying to do is trying to reach some compromise on the piece of legislation that would reform those punitive things and make some kind of effort uh, to have some prevention built into the law. However, uh, we lost uh, the election that following November. Mm -hmm. And when we lost... Our Republican friends defunded so much of the prevention stuff, increased funding for so much of the punitive stuff, the bill got out of whack. Mm. The whole law did. And that's what got us to where we are today. Well, nobody gives us credit. We revisited that in 2010. I worked very close with Bobby Scott, right. uh, Congressman Smith on the Republican side, and we finally got that 100 to 1 reduced to 18 to 1. So we are making progress and made more progress with the recent bill passed earlier this year. To the people who are running for president right now, who are using the 94 bill as dividing line between how things used to be and how they need to be now. Do you have a word of caution for them, not just on using it against Biden, but in terms of how they understand what was done in 94? Well, I would wish some people do a little more research uh, and see exactly how we got to where we are. The fact of the matter is, we on the Democratic side 
did a yeoman's job in putting in the kind of prevent, prevention programs, the preventive funding uh, in the bill, and we got to understand. Uh, on the punitive side, uh, the Republicans wanted that, and we found a compromise that everybody could live with. All of a sudden, our Republican friends took out uh, the prevention stuff, doubled down uh, on the punitive stuff, and because they were in the majority, they were able to prevail. And so I would caution my friends uh, to getting ready for the next election to be very careful. Let's not uh, be too unkind to people who find common ground on things. And remember, uh, no matter who's in the majority today, they may not be there tomorrow. So how does that apply to what we're dealing with right now with the relief bill? To hear it from Chip Roy, look, we didn't get a chance to debate this. There's a lot of stuff in it uh, that we don't like. Just because it came through the Senate doesn't mean that it's wholly responsible. Uh, We want proper process. And by the way, the border, which is a nightmare, is getting no attention. It was supposed to be in here, and it isn't. What's the weakness with that argument? Well, uh, I think that the weakness is we have been discussing this uh, disaster bill for a long, long time. We have passed disaster relief in the House. You may recall, we passed a very comprehensive bill, sent it over to the Senate. The president said he agreed with it. All of a sudden, uh, he uh, got upset, did not want to approve funding for Puerto Rico, and therefore, uh, we lost that battle. I think that my Republican uh, colleague uh, is being a bit disingenuous when he says that we have not debated this issue. Obviously, you recognize, uh, Mr. Whip, that what's going on at the border is terrible and it is being made worse by the inaction from Congress and from the White House. I understand the argument that let the disaster bill stand on its own. Fine. Why isn't there emergency type action on something that is certainly an emergency? Well, I think that we really need to come together. When you have divided government, you got the majority of Democrats in the House, a majority of Republicans in the Senate, and you've got the president who seem not to want uh, to find uh, common ground. I don't know why uh, compromise has got to be such a bad word. Uh, compromise is nothing but a process by which you seek common ground. Seeking common ground to me is an honorable thing to do in the legislative process. And for some reason, this president seemed to think it's got to be my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And some of his friends in the Congress seem to be adhering to that. But that's not the way you legislate in a democracy. Mr. Whip, thank you very much. Appreciate having you on primetime. Appreciate the perspective. Thank you so much for having me. All right. God bless and be well. Right. So Van Jones has been praising this president for doing something to reform the criminal justice system. So does he think the president is right about Joe Biden with respect to the 94 bill that we were just talking about with Clyburn? A great debate with Steve Cortez. Next. This president is throwing punches at Joe Biden, tweeting, quote, anyone associated with the 1994 crime bill will not have a chance of being elected and that he, this president, is responsible for criminal justice reform. 
Sounds like the makings of a great debate. Let's bring in Van Jones and Steve Cortez. Good to have you, gentlemen. I hope you had a good weekend. I hope you remembered Thank the you. fallen. Van, yes. so uh, I don't want to go too deep down the road of what has already been done in this administration. What else might be done? The context of this is whether or not the president is right about the 94 crime bill, especially with respect to Joe Biden. Your take. Well, look, let me just say before we get into that that you now have, I'm happy, regardless, I'm happy, because for the first time in my adult life and maybe in living memory, the president of the United States and the Democratic frontrunner are arguing who is the best on a criminal justice reform, not who's going to build more prisons, pass dumber laws, longer sentences, but who is going to be the best on fixing mass incarceration. That is a tremendous watershed moment. Now, uh, President Trump is wrong that uh, you know, Biden's record is going to make him uh, unelectable on the point. Uh, Trump has done better than anybody expected on the legislation. But on the administration, his Department of Justice is still doing bad, dumb stuff. So, you know, Biden can still hit him there. We can have a reasoned debate. But I just want to say to everybody, sometimes you got to take a step step back and take yes for an answer from both parties saying we've gone too far with incarceration and both parties want to do better. That's a good thing. Well, let's see what happens when the economy changes. You well, know? Fine, well, fine. When the economy is doing well, you don't have the same kinds of crime rates. You don't have the same kind of outcry. We've had good economies and kept building prisons for 30 years, true. man. This it's is true. a good thing. It's true. But, uh, you know, look, I know 94 very, very well. It was a formative mm. experience in my life. Why? Because that's when my father, Mario Cuomo, lost. Three-term governor, very popular guy. Why? Economy went south. He'd been there a long time. Crime was on the rise. The dominant cultural issue, you guys are both so young, at the time was the death penalty. The country was for it. Mario Cuomo wouldn't shut up about being against it. And it wound up leading to the contract on America taking him out. So I know the period well. And one of the things that led to it, Steve, was an irrational fear of black and brown marauding criminals. We had these things in New York City wilding where people were running around. Donald Trump was right in the center of it with false accusations against the Central Park Five. He has never apologized. He's never owned that he was wrong, that he was part of that. He is connected to the 94 bill. He was part of the animus that led to the want for more harsh punishment. How does he win on this? Well, Chris, first, he wins because I, I think that's why he, the president's highlighting this right now, is that when it comes to criminal justice reform in recent years, I'm not talking 1994, in recent years, the conservatives actually occupy the high ground right now, which would, which would surprise a lot of voters, I think, if they take a serious look. And not just President Trump, that's very important what he did uh, with the First Step Act, but also when you look at the governors, it's Republican governors, people like Rick Perry, who's now in Trump's cabinet, who was a governor of Texas, a place that's not known as being soft on crime, who closed prisons and who said for nonviolent drug offenders, instead of incarcerating them, let's give them treatment. And not only because it's better for them and for society, but it's also better for the taxpayer because it costs an enormous amount uh, to engage in mass incarceration. So the conservatives are the ones who are saying we incarcerate conservatives too many people. Conservatives have not led the long. way so, on decriminalizing drug use, by the way. The First Step Act is a good thing. It was no, a bipartisan I'm, thing. I'm glad Van worked with the people in the White House. But the idea that conservatives are the ones leading the way and decriminalizing drug use can't have that. Okay, no, no. Look, look who's who's closing prisons in America. They are conservative Republican governors, and that is a fact. Can That's not something? debatable. I got one of my uh, family who's doing the same yes. thing. And the last time I checked, he's not a conservative Republican. The, 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 here's here's Go what, ahead, Van. Here's here's what I will say on on both sides. I think that the Democrats would be surprised to see that you've got you know Mississippi Governor uh, Bryant 
uh, has, has moved in a positive direction of reform. A governor deal from Georgia. So you have a lot of Republicans. I agree with you. A lot of Republican governors have been doing well on this. Democrats haven't given them credit, don't even know what's happening. But what I'll also say is that, you know, Trump, though he did great on the legislation, Obama did better on the administration. You know, the Department of Justice implemented a lot of very smart policies that the Trump administration has rolled back. And so you're going to have both parties now. You can will be able to point to good stuff that they've done, but also bad stuff that's been done. This is a constructive debate. What I, if I were Biden, though, I would not get sucked into this. Biden is making a big mistake to go and try to relitigate 1994. It makes him sound old. It makes him sound like he's defensive. He should but he's say, getting hit from the left on but, it, but, Van. But, but here's, how he, here's how Biden should handle this. He should just say, listen, we, made, we, we did the best we could with, at that time. When I was in the Obama administration, the Obama administration had good ideas on legislation, didn't get it passed, got stopped by Republicans, but also good ideas on the administration. Our, Depart our Department of Justice did really, really well. Mm. Here's what I would do going forward. The more that Trump can trick Biden into talking about 94, the worse it is for Biden, the more that Biden can talk about what Obama did and tried to do and what he wants to do, the more he can win. But no matter what, this is good for the country. Both parties being proud of backing us out of this ditch and wanting to fight over that is a good thing. Thing. And yeah, if that's what it is, I don't know that that's what it is. I mean, well, yeah. and Chris, I, I get what the first step is, but I think it's aptly named. It's one step. And Chris, again, Steve, is, you let me bounce yeah. back to you because you ignored the premise of my initial question, which was, OK, Donald Trump has never applied. And I, I always call him most a president, but I'm talking about him then as a citizen. He wasn't president then, obviously, back in the right. late 80s. He's never apologized right. for it. He thinks they still did it. I right. can't believe that he believes that. But he says it. Okay. And I don't know why he feels that he can have high ground on this with what he Chris, did back then. Uh, Chris, I, I would love to get into all the facts of that night of what happened with the Central Park Five, because they are not nearly as exculpatory. All they had were their confessions. All they had were confessions no, with a not. bunch of and kids I, and where they put them in separate rooms. And I read facts. the books on it. I well, lived no, it. Steve, I, I know no, the facts no, no, very not, well. No, now, listen, no, hold no, on a second. No, no, hold on a second. No, and no, at best, no, I'm not going to no. You can't just say no a thousand times and not let me talk. Another guy's DNA was on the victim. I'm not going to sit here and let you lie. Correct. And, and, and that smear. was never in dispute, Chris. I'm not lying, Chris. That was never in dispute at trial. The prosecutor, in closing arguments, said, yes, the actual rapist, the person who did uh, the physical insertion, is not here on trial. That was established from the very beginning. You could Steve, be convicted of rape, are gonna go even back. if you are not the oh, one no. who See, did this is, this the actual raping. Now, on your so part. they get five you kids, be and of one of them was the one who did the rape. yourself at, to be on, on air like the president. Who did the raping? No. None and of those five guys. Terrible. With those five. Terrible. And then, he says, the case and then he says the woman is going to have to live with this, and it's terrible. That night. Now he's, he's using right. the victim's can I, tragedy. Can I talk? No, go you ahead, Steve. But you can't pervert the facts. You can talk, but you can't pervert the facts. Go ahead. No. But don't say what's not true. Go ahead. A, okay, a fact, a fact is that it was never there was it was never a predicate at all. The prosecutor at the time did not say that the DNA that the semen was from Sad one of those five. Man. They and didn't the even bring it to trial. They didn't introduce the, DNA at the, the trial. Best, the the best case scenario, not 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 DNA, semen. That's why I said Terrible. something different. DNA was Terrible. not in use at that time. It was. It was in its the early best stages. Best case scenario. 
the the well, but it was no, it was not acceptable at that point in New York court. It was not acceptable yet. Uh, here's the, here's the, the best, best case scenario, case scenario for those five. The best case scenario is that right, can I talk? Who went, I mean, no, did you bring me on, on the talk no, or not? Right, nope, not on this. I'm yeah, not going to. Oh, so I can't talk. So I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to review the facts of the case because the facts of the case, Van. The facts of the case are that in the best case, if you put them in their absolute best light, they committed heinous acts of violence that night in the bar. Let's end it there. And people like yourself. We can talk about the 94 bill, but until you guys decide to have Donald Trump own what he said, assaults that night, and that is they were railroaded, and you should be ashamed of yourself. They were railroaded. You know it. You're protecting the president. You're doing it on the backs of kids. They got paid 41 million for a reason. I'm not. This is why. You can never take the stain off with you about the facts of that case. I don't know because I know them cold. You don't know. You don't know disgusting tonight, Steve. I usually try to help you, but you're disgusting tonight. Uh, you Chris, should be you don't need a one-on-one debate about Central Disgusting. Park 5. Disgusting. $41 million the they paid those kids. And we'll do Donald it. Trump Millions. slandered them then, Terrible. and he knows it, and he lives it to this day. He gets no, no high ground on the 94 crime bill when he was part of the animus that led up to it. Gentlemen, thank you for making your cases. As always, Van, Steve, be well. All right. You've seen what's happening at Top Mountain. Not on this show. Listen, you got to get the facts right. You go back. <laughs> go back and take a look. I'm laughing because it's ridiculous what was being suggested. Now, What's happened at the top of Mount Everest? Things that didn't need to happen. These people were killed by congestion, okay? Climbers can't get around one another because there's too many of them trying to scale it at the same time in a small window. This is not what the metaphor of climbing the mountain was supposed to be about. This was not what the adventure was supposed to be about. I'm gonna take you through the facts of the situation and what they reveal, next. Well, thank God it's almost over up on Everest. The dozens who are left in the base camp are not going to attempt to ascend after one of the deadliest seasons ever. 11 people killed, and it wasn't because of a single calamitous event as we're used to hearing. This was different. Scores of climbers clamoring up a single route, creating a fatal traffic jam. All right, now, this is the photo that everybody was talking about. Look at this. I mean, are you kidding me? Now, look. This is not an easy thing to ascend, obviously. And remember, you're doing this all at great detriment physically because you don't have the oxygen. But come on, come on. 250 to 300 people, hours of delays and conditions that change in a matter of minutes just to summit. On Everest, every minute is crucial, okay? Now, let's just take a look at it, right? It doesn't look to scale like a big deal, but come on. It's 12,000 feet. You're starting off at it, something that's going to be higher than anybody else is ever going to be on unless they're on an airplane, all right? Now, you don't want to be in a log jam up there in a place called the death zone, all right? It starts here at base camp, all right? Now, this is what it looks like to you. You know, you have all these people coming around. They're trying to acclimatize here before they make the trek. 18,000 feet, 50% of oxygen at sea level, all right? It's all about thin air and getting the body used to it. What you can't control are the conditions. So now you're not at your best. you got freezing temperatures, blizzards, avalanches. That's why you usually wind up having a death event. Since 1922, uh, the year that climbers have uh, started recording the deaths, you had more than 200, okay? And why? Well, most of them die up on the peak. That makes sense. Their bodies are frozen. You can't recover them because it's too dangerous and too expensive a task to retrieve them, frankly. Now, most die... And as I said earlier, in what is called the death zone, above 26,000 feet. 
Well, why is it? Well, obviously, it's the highest. It's the most dangerous. There's the least oxygen. We're not supposed to be there. The body cells literally start to die. Your judgment is impaired. The risk of heart attack, stroke increases dramatically. All right. So what we've seen in the past is uh, that that's what's going to take you out. But now we have a new factor. Eleven people are dead. You know, God bless them, the best to their families and those who love them. But this didn't need to happen. This is about overcrowding in that zone. All right. The latest fatality just yesterday uh, was an American, 62 years old, Christopher John Kulish, and a 64-year-old Austrian man also died. They died hours after actually summiting. Now, this is not that unusual to die on the way back down. They made it to the 29,000 feet. That's like 20 Empire State Buildings that they climbed, 33% oxygen. That means you're going up a big flight of stairs and you're getting one out of every three breaths. I mean, just think about the deprivation. Now, why on the way down? Well, several factors. Let's take a look at them. Uh, You have altitude sickness. Like I said, the cells start to change. You're not supposed to be there. Sickness from prolonged exposure. Bad weather. Smaller window to make back down. So you make this risk, right? All these things in life, the metaphor, scared money never wins, got to get to the top. Coming back down, sometimes you're stuck. You're coming through a single route through Nepal. Inexperienced climbers holding up the lines. The permitting process has come under scrutiny. The Nepal government specifically is getting scrutiny because they failed to require proof of climbing experience for those that they issue permits to. Now, one more title that this all raises for us. What is it that fuels our need to test our limits no matter the risk? Why climb the mountain? What is the real test? Let's get into that with D. Lemon next, now that we got the facts and situation under control. Why do you climb the mountain? Because it's there. Attack the obstacle. Master the metaphor of overcoming. And the danger makes the success all the sweeter. After all, that's what my motto, let's get after it, is all about. Facing the challenge. But isn't there a balance being missed here with what we see in Everest? There is no small distance between testing limits and setting yourself up for trouble. What is happening on Everest warrants some straight talk. Let's bring in D. Lemon. All respect and love for the people who make the trek and Mm -hmm. uh, really remember those who are gone and my condolences to their families. Um, But when you look at that picture and understand what's going on, you do have to speak truth about what is it worth to get this achievement? Mm-hmm. You know, what will you go through to get what this is? Mm-hmm. What's your take? Well, I, um, I'm going to speak to Woody Hartman tonight on my show, who mm-hmm. um, took one of these pictures and who just summited the mountain and is down now. And he has uh, really a, uh, a very personal story about what it's like to come across dead bodies and people who have lost consciousness. And he actually said the exact quote that you said, because of the mountain is there and it represents um, the highest of what man can achieve uh, and and maybe the toughest. And quite frankly, I think his best answer came when I said, you know what, most regular folks will just ask you why you do it. And so I'll save that for uh, coming up. I think it's, listen, I think it's tough. Before Before you could get the question out for me, if you, you, know, you said to me, Don, would you like to climb Mount whatever, Kilimanjaro or Everest or whatever? It would be no. I just don't. I think there are some things that humans um, should not do. And, um, I, you know, but 
people do it and more power to them. It's not for and me. And look, and very often it's life changing uh, for people. And it, sure. it gives them a sense of themselves they didn't have. It could be empowering and motivating for the rest of their lives. I totally get it. I have friends who do it. I am a risk taker. I don't want to be called out as a hypocrite. I do a lot of things that are risky. I understand the risks. I try to calculate them. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I think that you have to think about, well, what happens if it goes wrong? This is what I say to Mario all the time. My son is a huge daredevil. What happens if it goes wrong? I because saw him doing double jumps in the pool this weekend. I will send you some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I turned around. I was washing the boat. I turn around. He is standing on a piling that's about this wide, 25 feet up in the air. And he's uh-huh. doing the karate kid thing. And then he's closing his eyes and doing the yoga thing. Now, listen. The, Wait, the, do you remember? Hold on. Do you remember the time he jumped off the boat? Oh, yeah. While you were going, what were you going, like 30 yeah, miles like an 30 hour? Yeah, like 30 miles an hour. He wanted to see how much he would skip. Look, he's one of those kids. He gets an adrenaline rush on things. And I get it. I get it. I was that way. I am still kind of that way with the fighting. But it does make you think, who's waiting for you at home? What is home about? What will be lost? What are you risking? I think those are real questions, too. It's not just about climbing the mountain. Yeah. I do risky things like pushing you and guests on television and getting in trouble, but... That's risky enough (laughs) these days. That's risky enough these days, but I'm not going to do that. Hey, listen, I got to tell you, you know, Bill Weld who is a former Massachusetts governor sure. running for president, uh, says that Trump prefers an Aryan nation. I'm gonna, he's going to join me. I'm going to ask him why he said that. And you have got to stay tuned for my show. I was at the Pulitzer Prizes today at Columbia University. Mm. There was a surprise guest in honor of Aretha Franklin who got a posthumous uh, Pulitzer. You want to hear her sing Amazing. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I will do it. I'll Amazing. be on the couch. Picking ticks off my dogs. Yes. I'll see you in a little bit, <laughs> buddy. See you. All right. Why is this man smiling? Not yet. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. That's as close as you get. Why? Because he knows what he's going to do if there's another SCOTUS vacancy, even in an election year. Merrick Garland, who? So many are outraged about what Mitch McConnell said. I want you to hear it, but then I want you to tackle the ugly reality. Next. First fact in the argument, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refusing to put up Merrick Garland for a SCOTUS vacancy. All we're doing, Chris, is following a longstanding tradition of not filling vacancies on the Supreme Court in the middle of a presidential election year. Would he do the same thing if the president were in his party? Next fact, he said this today. The Supreme Court justice will die next year. Oh, uh, we'd fill it. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, the hypocrisy. Shame on McConnell. Poster child for perfidy. All things wrong with politics. Except he isn't the problem, is he? He's a symptom, like a fever rash or clammy hands or gas. I now argue the reality, the root cause. Elections have consequences. QI roll. Don't hear it in a judgy, take your punishment kind of way. I don't mean it like that. You control all of it. What McConnell does, what deals are made, they are all voted in or out, these people, and they act out of fear of consequence more than good conscience. You just saw it. Witness McConnell for what he is. Witness the odd evolution of Senator Lindsey Graham for what it is. See, too many put too much emphasis on the players and not the reality of who controls the game. We all hear it. And most say it. Votes, nah, they're marginalized. They don't really count. It's all about the money, the elites, the insiders, the media, the whatever. 
and then you get Trump. While one could easily argue that this president is an example of much of what his supporters say they are against, none of those influences was enough to prevail over people at the polls in the places that mattered. That's why I argue it is a dangerous mistake to see this president as the root of your troubles. He is a reflection of what we have let our system become. And in an odd twist, people saw things they wanted to change, things they hate. And they saw this president not as a cure, but almost like a virus inserted into the corpus of politics to set about making it sick as a way of, I guess, hopefully sweating itself out of the fever of favoritism they reject. You're right to attack the players. Of course, decency is dead. Compromise is seen as capitulation, a word that draws on the idea of losing your head because of what you're doing. Sad, true. But they don't control the game. Not really. If you were to look at this and say, I never want to see one of these guys do this again. I hate this. If you feel like that and you're in Kentucky, there will never be another Mitch McConnell moment like this if he gets voted out. These people are only as bad as you allow them to be. Elections do have consequences. Remember your power, people. Remember it. Remember to use it. This will be my clarion call to you during this election. It's all about you. You get what you want in a democracy. That's why Mitch McConnell is able to play the game, because he has kept a player in it. Thank you for watching. CNN Tonight with the one and only D. Lemon starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.